given us. He has given us freedom in Him, abundance in His grace, and He's given us peace in His mercy. Thanks for joining us at Hope of Our Calling. Let's get started in our study of 1 Peter. Hi everyone, welcome to Hope of Our Calling. This is Kendra and we'll be studying 1 Peter chapter 3 today. So last week we went through Passover, we went through the Last Supper, and we went through the resurrection where Christ not only conquered death for us, but also proposed to us and presented to us that cup of proposal. And if we partook during Good Friday of that communion, that's exactly what we did. We accepted his cup of proposal, and we laid down our lives that he might live through us. Now, all of this, everything that we've been studying, where we studied the first part of chapter 3, prior to the Passover and now that we're going to finish it, it all comes down to, and the whole discussion is about submission. So I want to look at a few verses that speak about Christ, because that's what happened during the Passover at Calvary. Jesus laid down his life. In In the Garden of Gethsemane, we saw this. We saw the human part of him struggling with the awareness of what lay ahead of him to the point of such anguish that he sweat drops of blood. I can't imagine what some of our brothers and sisters have had to face, still facing today, the persecution. We saw it just a year or so ago with ISIS um, slaughtering our brothers and sisters. Jesus was dying for us. He was dying for his bride. And he is asking us not to go through the brutality that he went through, though many, many, many have been put to that test. But he's simply asking us daily if we would submit our lives to him and allow him, his spirit, to rule in our hearts and minds that others might see the glory that he purchased for them because everyone, believer and not, it's just whether or not they will receive the gift of eternal life. He will not force anyone to be in heaven with him. So anyway, again, we're talking about submission. Let's take a look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 for just a second. It says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And my question is, the joy that was set before him. Jesus was seeing through the cross and asks us to do the same as we study his word and we learn not only of him, but of the glories 
that wait for us when we see him face to face. And when we were studying the first chapter of Peter, verses 10 and 11 said, Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. As we look through God's word and we see that God is calling us to submit our lives, that we would no longer live in the lust of the flesh, but we would walk in his spirit as we have given our lives over to him. It's no longer I that lives, but Christ that lives in me. This is the only way we will experience righteousness because we're receiving his direction and he directs us into his righteousness. So what was the joy? What was the glory that is being referenced here? It is God's glory. It is the joy of Jesus bringing many, many into the kingdom of God through his great sacrifice. So in the latter part of chapter 2, when we were studying there, in verses 20 and 21, it said, For what credit is it when you're beaten for your faults and you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. So when we read in God's word to submit, we are submitting again to God's righteousness, to God's order. He is the creator. He knows exactly what he's doing, what he's cultivating in this garden of humanity that he has designed that he has created. When we were together before the Passover, before Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday, we talked about wives submitting to their own husbands. And it went on to declare that if we would obey God's word, that perchance those husbands who have not yet received the good news, the gospel, might by their wives' chaste behavior or their wives' behavior that seeks God's glory might draw those husbands into salvation as well. And we're going to see today that in our submission, it is not a subjection, but it is an understanding that when we commit everything to God for his judgment, which is righteous, 
that we don't have to carry burdens. We don't have to strike back. We don't have to obtain justice for ourselves. We just need to seek the Lord. We need to always be concerned about our relationship with the Lord and what condition our heart is in because the enemy is real. And everything that is happening in the world and happening in and through our lives is seeking to pull our hearts away from God, to plunge our hearts into bitterness and despair and anger and frustration. And yet God says, come unto me, all ye that are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. God wants our hearts at rest. He wants us to trust him above all things. And that's what this experience of life is all about. Learning to trust our creator. In the garden, we saw Eve doubt God. When she believed Satan, she exalted Satan and herself above God's word. Her pride chose her way versus God's way. And when we do that, we are also like Adam and Eve in complete disobedience, but more so in pride, elevating ourselves above the one who created everything and knows everything. But as we study God's word, we're washed from the ways of the world. And we're compelled further into the kingdom of God and his truths. But again, there is that battle. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, it says, We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. In other words, the one who likes to sow the doubt is constantly battling against God's word. Remember Genesis 3, hath God really said? Challenging God, that's all that the enemy has, is to challenge God. So God is trying to teach us the truths of heaven where there is purity, where there is strength, where there is truth, where there is tender mercies and loving kindness, where there is his word that declares his way. One of the saddest verses in God's word is when he said that wide is the path that leads to destruction and many there be on it. And narrow is the way that leads to righteousness and few, few there be on it. Saints, I want to be one of those few. I want to be so tuned into God's word that when the challenges come, I can hold up my shield of faith that the Bible says quenches every fiery dart of the enemy. And I can take out the sword of the spirit, which is God's word, because I've planted God's word in my heart. And I can speak God's truth against the lie of the enemy. Jesus said they were of their father, the father of lies. And if we look at the world, that's what we see. The father of lies is everywhere. It just seems worse now. We need to have such sweet fellowship with God's word 
that we recognize the counterfeit lie and deception. When we learn to emulate Christ, when we learn to trust God, when we learn to stand in His wisdom, seek Him in all our ways, let Him direct our path, when we follow Christ by saying, Nevertheless, Lord, not my will be done, but Thine, more often than not, you will find yourself stepping back from situations that tempt you to return evil for evil. But Jesus said, You have heard it say to hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemy and pray for those that despitefully use you. I recently went to see the movie The Apostle Paul. And Luke was visiting him. And Luke had just witnessed a horrific event as Nero was burning Christians as candles in the city. And he came to meet Paul and he was full of vengeance. But the Bible says vengeance is mine, says the Lord, because God's the one that can mete out judgment righteously, not us. But the apostle Paul got up and he spoke to Luke about love. As Luke was wrestling with his anger, the apostle Paul, who was in prison, beaten, wretched and torn, declared to Luke, love is patient and love is kind and it it just left this point with me we must rise above the ways of the world and realize our flesh is in this world it is it's tied in to all the things that can trigger frustration and anger and malice in us But we've been given a new heart. We've been given God's spirit to help lift us up and give us the strength to fight that fleshly lust and turn it over to the one who judges righteously. We must be aware that the the eyes of the Lord are on us and his ears are open to our prayers. The Bible says that our weapons of warfare are not carnal, but mighty to the pulling down of strongholds, meaning God is waiting for our prayer. We're called to intercede for one another. We must seek the Lord, especially in those moments where we're called to submit wives to their husbands or to the authority that God has placed over us, the kings or the governors or our employer. We are to submit ourselves to those that God has placed above us and we are to act righteously for them to see us and say, how is it that they're constantly persecuted and yet they say, praise the Lord. Again, it's a battlefield, but God is with us. He's watching us. He's desiring for us to know more of him and his ways and to draw closer to him. And that generally doesn't come when everything's nice and rosy. That generally comes when we're in difficulty. If you look through scripture, that's generally where you saw most of the saints saying the most brilliant, profound things when they were tested. Peter said, what credit is it if you're beaten for your faults and you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, you take it patiently? This is commendable before God. And we are called 
to walk in Christ's footsteps. So, 1 Peter chapter 3, starting at verse 13, and it says, And who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? And he kind of reiterates what he just wrote in, in, in 1 Peter chapter 2. But and if you suffer for righteousness sake, happy are you, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you for the reason of the hope that is in you with all meekness and fear, having a good conscience that whatsoever they speak evil of you as evildoers, that they might be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it's better, if the will of God be so, that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. And isn't that what Christ did? Jesus never sinned. For what is it that you crucify me for? Because of pride? Because of jealousy? Because they didn't know the word of God? It is imperative if you are a believer in Christ, to know him. In the Gospel of John, we've said this many times, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That means that every time we set time aside and we spend time with the word of God, we're spending time with Jesus, our beloved, our groom at the soon-to-come wedding feast of the Lamb. Do you remember in Revelation it said the bride has made herself ready? We're the bride. We do that by getting to know our groom and his word. We do that by hiding his word in our hearts so we don't sin against him. We do that by having an answer for everyone that asks us about the hope that dwells within us. No one can take from us what God has given us. He has given us freedom in him, abundance in his grace, and he's given us peace in his mercy. We must demonstrate Christ accurately. Are we an example of his freedom, or are we murmuring and complaining about those things that come into our life to challenge our faith, to deepen our faith and our trust in the Lord? Are we vessels of his grace his peace, and his mercy. Is that what we're giving to people? Jesus declared in Luke chapter 23, 34, while he hung on the cross, after being brutally beaten, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Can we say that? Can we say that when somebody cuts us off on the freeway? Can we say that when somebody jumps in line ahead of us? Can we say that when somebody is stolen from us, lied to us, deceived us, can we see them created in God's image, yet not enlightened yet? Can we, instead of reacting in our flesh, beg God for grace and mercy and pray for them, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do, that maybe. Just maybe 
Our prayer for them might propel them down a line of other saints continuing to pray for them that eventually they will be turned around. They will repent and turn around and come to know Christ. Don't know. We're just called to do it God's way and not our way. In verse 15, it says, But sanctify the Lord God in your heart and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you for the reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. We have to see God on the throne. Let him be the one that we have the utmost affection for. Don't you want to hear him say, well done, my good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. I sometimes feel I'm just hanging under the fringe of his garment because life just squeezes me in a vice. And I've got to just refuse my flesh and say, Lord, have thine own way. Nevertheless, Lord, thy will be done. I will not see those around me trusting Jesus until they can recognize a clear difference between me and the rest of the world. God wants to sanctify you as he is holy. When God deals with us, there's this radical degree of purity about our life that will make the absolute difference from the world. The world will be convinced to join us in serving the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords when they witness his consecration in our life, our commitment to him. The Life Application Bible says some Christians believe that faith is a a personal matter that should be kept to oneself. I had an aunt like that as I wrote her a letter declaring my faith. She wrote one back quickly and told me how it was a private matter. (laughs) I pray that somebody else came along and helped her see the truth. It's true that we shouldn't be boisterous or obnoxious when we share our faith, but we should always be ready to give an answer in gentleness and respectfulness. When asked about our faith, our lifestyle, or our Christian perspective, can others see our hope? In Christ, are you prepared to tell them what Christ has done in your life? It goes on to say that we're supposed to have a good conscience. Whereas they speak evil of you as evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it's better if the will of God be so that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. There's a women's devotional that I found that had a couple of things to help us to overcome that pride and that prick of our flesh when the, when the world offends us. We must see them as broken and confused, as messed up, hurting, and struggling as we are. Because though we have Christ as our Lord, though his spirit dwells within us, The battle still rages for my way versus his way. And generally speaking, God will take you on a pathway that you think is like, this is bizarre, Lord. Why are we doing this? Because he wants to show you great and mighty things you know not. Mostly that he does exceedingly and abundantly above all we could ask or think. 
And to tell you the truth, after a couple of decades walking with him, I don't want anything but exceedingly and abundantly above what I can ask or think. The devotional goes on to say, live out our true calling. Love our enemies means that we must learn to see them as the image bearer. But first, we must learn to see ourselves as the image bearer. When I remember that my core calling is to show God, sanctified in my heart. And in order for that to happen, we have to give way. We have to surrender all. Not my will, but thine be done, Lord. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. First thing we got to take notice of, this is a Trinity passage. We see Christ, we see God, we see the Spirit. I always like to point out when we come across the scriptures that declare the Trinity of God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It's thought by commentators that this reference that we just read is about what Jesus did directly following giving up his Spirit on the cross. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8, and in Psalm 68, 18, it talks about this. It talks about also in Luke 16, 22, that Jesus was telling a parable about a very wealthy man, a very poor man, and when they both died, the poor man went to Abraham's bosom and the rich man went into hell, beckoning across the great divide to Abraham and said, Father, Abraham, send Lazarus to bring some water for my tongue. And the response was, if you didn't believe in life, there is nothing I can do for you here. Kendra's paraphrase. So what happened was, is all the prophets of old, in the old covenant, in the Old Testament, walked by faith, still not quite positively sure what the end result was going to be what the end result was going to look like. They didn't quite comprehend when Abraham took his son to sacrifice and said, God will provide himself a lamb. When they didn't understand that the protocol for Passover was to take an unblemished lamb, that one day John the apostle would declare, behold the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world that they didn't realize that the day of Passover, Christ died. He was the lamb. So what Christ did, it is thought by many biblical scholars, was descend to those prophets who could not ascend into heaven without the ultimate sacrifice, which was Christ, the lamb of God, and preach the gospel to them. Here I am. I'm the good shepherd. I am the door. I am the bread of life. And thus, when he ascended, we also learned of graves opening and the dead coming to life. It's an amazing story. You've got to read it. It's in the Gospels. We didn't quite finish chapter 3, so we'll have to pick it up next week. But 
uh, just a forewarning, we're going to be on the road in May. So we're going to be do some, doing some podcasts on the road, and I'm kind of excited about that. It's new season for us, and I'm just really blessed that you've come diligently to hear Hope of Our Calling. I pray it blesses you and is teaching you the things of God that your relationship with the Lord is growing in grace and knowledge. Lord bless and keep you. Till next time. For more information about Kendra Martin and Hope of Our Calling, you can email her at kendramartinministries at gmail.com or visit the website at www.hopeofourcalling.org.